Hey, what's up, you guys? This is Bert. I'm the lead pastor at True North Community Church. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. I'm going to have a little something to say to you at the end, but for now, let's dive in. So again, my name is Kathleen. I'm thrilled to be sharing with you in our summer Battle of the Band series, where those on our teaching team and Pastor Bert are taking a look at songs maybe from our seminal teenage years or songs that really impacted us and seeing that some of these lyrics actually sound like some things we've heard about in the Bible. So anyone in the room a 90s kid? Yay! Okay, good, there are a few of you. (laughs) So the 90s music was totally different from the music of the decades prior to it. In the 60s, you have um, movement music where people sang songs for civil rights and anti-war. In the 70s, there was this drugs, disco, partying going on. In the 80s, we see this shift to like rock ballads and love anthems. And then we get to the 90s, And we look around, we go, "Uh, the party is over. And we realize we're not always feeling like partying. We have some dark, deep, raw, emotional feelings. And the music of the 90s was as if someone looked at a journal and ripped out some of those pages and put those words to music. They were what we all felt after three decades of partying. And looking back, it was authentic humanity, this hopelessness that permeates, and we were gonna sing about it. So you had bands like Nirvana and Soul Asylum and Metallica, these really deep bands who were playing and making music. And there was also this super cool group of women singer-songwriters. So we had people like Alanis Morissette, who told us what we ought to know. We had people like Natalie Merchant. And we had this song, in the arms of the angels. You're in that puppy cage, right? You feel that from those commercials from Sarah McLachlan? (laughs) So that was what music of the 90s for teenage girls like me, for women, was like. And my personal favorite was Tori Amos, and I was pretty obsessed with her in high school, and we do have a photo of me on my way to my first Tori Amos concert. I think I'm like 17. I was clearly super, super excited, and yes, that's my bedroom. She stared at me as I slept, and um, I don't know if that girl in that picture who was struggling with her faith, had these really awful friendships, and was just trying to like keep afloat, ever thought her obsession with Tori Amos would have her standing on a church stage somehow figuring out that the word of God is somehow there. That's a major beauty from Ash's story right there. So we're going to take a look at how a song that Tori Amos wrote kind of correlates with feelings that Jesus wants for us. Now I'm going to tell a story that happened to me when I was 15. But chances are it happened to all of you at some point. You might have been younger, you might have been a teenager, you might be going through it right now as you're older. And for me, I was in high school, I was a sophomore. I went to Catholic school, 
I very much wanted to be a people pleaser, so this would have gotten me detention, this bloused shirt, because when I went to school, I had to have my shirt tucked perfectly, the skirt was never rolled, it was very important that everybody knew I was perfect. And so one day, between classes, I'm walking through the halls to go to my locker, and I get to my locker, and I dead stop in front of it because there is a word on my locker written in permanent Sharpie that is not safe for church. And I stare at that word, and for that moment, I hope no one else is looking because I'm panicking because that word is like a brand on my soul. And so I did the only thing I knew how to do. I grabbed a ballpoint pen out and I stood there in front of my locker where everyone could see me and I panicked and I started scraping off that word letter by letter with the paint flecks flicking in my face just to erase that, to carve that out of my identity. We're now gonna listen to a small portion of the song Crucify by Tori Amos. crucify ourselves over and over and over? Why do we rehash our hurts over and over? We think nothing's ever good enough. Nothing's good enough for ourselves. Nothing's good enough for other people. And so our heart gets sick of being captive to these feelings. These are not unique thoughts to a teenager. These are thoughts every single one of us has felt or maybe even feels today. It's the feeling this, that creeps in. It's a darkness. It lingers when someone has violated you. It lingers when you or when I do something unforgivable. We want to hide away. Fear holds us back. We feel weak. 
we feel like a failure and we feel unworthy. We put up a barrier between ourselves and other people and ourselves and God. That feeling that you feel right now, that in your stomach, that ick, that's not a feeling God wants for us. That feeling is shame. And we hold on to it. We carry the heavy burden of our shame. What are you ashamed of? What's that one thing that you hope no one ever finds out? What has someone done to you? Or what have you done to someone else that makes you feel unloved, unworthy, a failure? We crucify ourselves over and over and over through our shame. We rehash those hurts in our heart, the ones other people caused or the ones we caused. We punish ourselves, and each one of us continues to grab tightly to that shame. This isn't what we want for ourselves. This isn't what other people want for you. It's not what God wants for us. And we learn about that, how much more Jesus wants for us and how much God loves us despite our shame in the longest conversation Jesus ever has in the New Testament. And this conversation happened between Jesus and a woman from Samaria, which to people in biblical times that were Jewish, that right there would be a non-starter. So in this story, Jesus and his disciples, his male followers, those who were with him, are traveling home from Jerusalem back to Galilee. People had to do this several times a year. And the Samaritans and the Jewish people did not get along because of some cultural and some religious um, notions that they had about one another. In fact, for Jewish people, they believed that Samaritans were unclean. They wanted nothing to do with them. So when they would travel, they would actually go around Samaria, which was the most direct route, to go around and never touch that unclean area. And women, they weren't too much better. A woman alone, that would be unheard of, and a man wouldn't talk to her because their notion is, what's a woman gonna say? They were also, at times, not considered clean. But Jesus goes to this place at this time of day and chooses this woman to talk to at the moment she needed it most. So Jesus is thirsty from a long day, and he goes to a well, and he sees a woman who's there who is alone. That's also shocking, 
because we're told it's the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day. And this woman is there getting her water. Usually in biblical times, women would bring their jars together. This was kind of like happy hour in the morning <laughs> where women would get together, carry their jars together, carry these heavy jars of water, gossip, find out who's having a baby, who's getting married. This was a moment of community for these women. But this woman does not want to be seen, so she's alone in the middle of the hot day at the well. And Jesus comes up to her and speaks to her and goes, give me a drink. She looks around like, uh, me? I know I'm the only one here, but me? And the reason she reacts like that is because he would have had to drink from her cup. This woman, a Samaritan who's considered unclean, who had drank from this cup, he would want to drink from hers. This is like if like April 2020, someone said to you, ooh, this is a really good cup of coffee. You want to have some? Drink it. That's that, it's exactly that feeling. But she listens to him and she was shocked. She also didn't need any more of a scandal for a Jewish man to be talking to her right now. So they have this conversation about water. Water that can sustain your life to keep you alive or this living water that only comes from one place. And so she and Jesus have this conversation. And it starts with John chapter 4, verse 13. Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to draw water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you are right. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you are with now, you aren't even married to. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So why does Jesus ask her this question? Where's your husband? Does he do it to shame her or embarrass her? No. He already knows her story. He already knows her shame. And now we do too. He names her shame, but not her sin. She was married five times. In biblical times, it was extremely hard for a wife to be able to divorce her husband. It was a lot easier for a husband to divorce her wife. If she was promiscuous, or if she burnt dinner, or talked too much. Those are real reasons of how easy it was for a man to demand divorce. So we see this and wonder, was she promiscuous? It's probably more likely that she was a widow whose husbands had died and that she was divorced, rejected, and abandoned over and over. And right there, 
Jesus names the heavy burden of her shame that she's carrying. But he doesn't dwell on that shame. That's not what happens. Because Jesus has sought out this woman, chosen her, and maybe for the first time in her life, made her feel worthy of love, not by society, but by her savior. So they keep on talking. They move right past that conversation of shame. Actually, she changes the subject. But they start talking about something that a man, a rabbi, a respected teacher wouldn't usually talk about with a woman. And they talk about the things of God. We'd say theology. They talk about where you should worship and how you should worship and who God is. Jesus chooses to have a conversation with this rejected woman that is about the living water, the God she needs to know. He absolutely could have ignored her, but he spent time with her, and in her deepest need, he moved past her shame. But there's even more. To this woman who's rejected by society, Jesus not only treated her as worthy, he treated her as worthy of knowing something he had not even told his friends or his family before in the Gospel of John. Jesus selects this woman and risks his reputation to say the following, and it's in John chapter 4, verse 24. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. For the first time, not to the people that he's with the most, not to the people who seem to be valued the most by Jesus, but by this woman who was rejected by society, to whom he asked for a drink, who held the heavy burden of shame that was held by her and seen by others, Jesus tells her, I am the Messiah. I am the one you've been waiting for. He chose her and he showed that she was worthy enough to sit with and know who the Messiah was. He sought out this outcast in enemy territory to reveal himself. He went through all that muck. Her sense of worthiness, our sense of worthiness, our shame does not dictate how Jesus will reveal himself to you. But there's more. So in John chapter 4, verse 28, the disciples come back and they notice Jesus with this woman. And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. The disciples go, we're not going to say anything, but why is he doing this? He should not be talking to this woman. What the heck? 
But they observed this, and the woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? Did you catch that? She leaves her jar, the reason she was at that well in the first place, and leaves it at the well. And then she went and told everybody, the people who already knew about her, that she met this man who knew everything about her. But she was no longer ashamed. She left that shame like she left her jar at the feet of Jesus. And she went out and she told these people, I was with the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for. She carried that heaviness of shame and released it in that moment. And then others in this village were told later, believed in Jesus and welcomed them, welcomed Jesus and his disciples because of what she said about who he was. When you or I think we're guilty, Jesus pronounces us as blameless and shameless. And Jesus calls you to drop your shame. Let him carry it because he makes you worthy through his sufficient grace. It's not about what we crucify ourselves over and over and over. It's about the one who was crucified for us. It's time for us to come off our cross because he was already crucified for you. Jesus goes out of his way to reveal himself to you. He goes to take your shame. So think about that shameful thing that you thought about at the beginning and go back to it. And think about how Jesus, in his goodness, has forgiven you. Think about the heavy burden of your jars of shame. Let yourself know that Jesus forgives you. You can forgive others. And maybe what you need to do most is forgive yourself. And then drop it. Leave your shame at the feet of Jesus. And then you have to run and tell everyone you know who it is that lets you leave your shame behind, who it is that has found you worthy. So let Jesus take that heavy burden of shame because he's our Messiah, the Christ, the one we've all been waiting for. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you 
for taking the heavy burdens in our lives and for the gift of your son who takes them away from us. May we forgive those who've hurt us. May we forgive ourselves as you forgive us, Lord. Help us to go forward and be able to tell people who Jesus is so that instead of feeling unloved and unworthy, we can know and others can know you love us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks once again for taking the time to listen. It's an honor to have you with us. If you'd like to support our church financially and help us continue to put this content out there for free, that would be a really big deal to us. We're completely supported by the contributions of the people that come to our church. And if you'd like to help, you can do that online at truenorthchurch.net slash give, or you can do it with a text message. Just text the word TRUENORTH to 77977 on your cell phone, and you'll get a prompt leading you through how to do that. Thanks again for dialing in. See you soon. Bye-bye.